Hello. How's it going? Great. How are you? Oh, I'm wonderful. Thank you. Good. Welcome to the School Bridge Podcast. I'm Piers. I'm Maggie. And this is episode four, where we're discussing questioning strategies. We broke today's episode down into five chapters. The first one, the questions have three components. Chapter two, cognitive hierarchies. Chapter three, the purpose of different questions. Chapter four, the types of questions. And then five, how you should respond when students give you both right answers and wrong answers. Perfect. So when we were talking about this episode, obviously teachers ask a ton of questions. That's a key piece of, of teaching and of learning. And we thought, how many, I wonder how many questions on average a teacher asks a day. And it turns out you found some actual data to answer that. Yeah, using the Google machine. Google machine. There was an article from The Guardian that said that on average, teachers ask about 400 questions a day. Or if you follow the American school year, about 70,000 questions for the year. That's remarkable. 400 questions. And I know th- some of the questions are like, what are you doing? Yes, absolutely. Can you help me understand your decision making process? Did, why did you do that? <laughs> That's so true. But they, they are such a huge piece of teaching and probably part of why we're a little tired by the end of the day and certainly by the end of the week. Um, but you, like you said, we know that not all questions are created equal. And that's what we were thinking about for today was some of the tips and tricks and and tweaks and just kind of geeking out on some of the um, strategies you can employ when you're asking questions. Yeah, because if there's something that you're doing 400 times a day, you hopefully you're doing it as, as well as you can. Yeah, and you have a lot of chances to make it a little bit better. A lot of practice. And I think, you know, when you first come into teaching, questioning is just a natural thing that you do. Mm-hmm. But I think throughout your career, you start realizing that like there are techniques to it and there are certain tips and tricks and all the different ways that you can use questioning. Absolutely. Let's get into chapter one though, where the questions have three components. Yeah. So this is just how I think about questions, but I find it super helpful. I think that every single question has three parts to it, three components. So it's asking the right question, right? So phrasing it properly, um, kind of in the right context, et cetera. And we'll, we'll talk more about that. So asking the right question, asking it in the right way, and then how you respond to whatever you get from the student. And there's all, I mean, when we say questions, you ask questions often, right? There's questions in your do now, there's questions in your mastery check, there's questions on your assessment. Mm-hmm. We're sort of discussing questions that you ask in the moment, in the classroom, when you're in direct instruction. Right. And I like that you were saying, asking the right questions. Right. Right. Depending on where you are in the lesson, what is the right question to ask to elicit the type of response you're looking for? Yeah. And then when you get, like you were saying, when you have that data from what the kid says, how you respond in the right way. Right. And, you know, it's like, we'll talk about types of questions in a second, but are you checking for understanding or are you trying to push their critical thinking? Right. And so you do need to ask the right question at the right time. And then asking it in the right way, I've found to be super helpful. So things like, that's like the strategy, like you were saying, like wait time, right? So I don't want to just ask a question and then immediately move on. I need to make sure that I'm giving my learner time to process. Or am I trying to ask it whole group or one-on-one, you know? So when you're, when you're thinking, when you're in your middle of your lesson and you're engaging in questions with the kids, mm-hmm. those three components are really important to think about, you know? What is the right way to ask this question? And depending on what the kid says, well, how am I going to respond to it? Yeah. And am I asking it at the right time? 
Yeah. And you know those moments we've all had where you ask a question and it's just crickets. Right. You know, and like that's a cue that I have done something wrong. If if none of the children aren't responding, I had something wrong with my question. And that's a really easy way to think about it. Am I asking the right question or did I not ask it in the right way? And you can like immediately tweak something about how you did it and hopefully get a better response. We I think yeah, we've all know that that dead silence when you ask a question. Oh yeah. And you're not sure should you fill the time? So you cold call on somebody, mm-hmm. and you, you know, you cold call on the kid who you know is going to have the right answer. Mm-hmm. And you're stuck in that limbo mode where you're just trying to move on. But that's actually not the right thing to do, because obviously you're not giving all of the kids in the class the opportunity to answer. Exactly. And that's the point, right? We want every brain, pro- ideally, we want every brain in the room processing that question that we asked. Um, I had a coach a couple years ago give me an exercise about questions that I thought was really interesting and super helpful and she said what if you only got five questions a lesson so your whole lesson yeah your coach said think about your five key questions your most important question that's all you got yeah you're limited to five and you can ask them over and over but like it's these five that your kids have to hit yeah and and what would they be what would they be you know and that's a really cool exercise when you're lesson planning, I wouldn't do that in the moment in the room, but when you're looking at a lesson thinking, you know, if I could only ask five questions or three questions, what would they be? And it helps you really um, just sort of hone in on what the most important pieces are that you want to get a response um, out of from your kids. You it, know? Ma- it makes me think when I'm planning and I'm looking at the knowledge and the skills that the kids need to learn for that lesson, what questions go along with that? And if I had to scaffold it to five questions only, mm-hmm. how would you do it? Like, mm-hmm. obviously, hopefully at the end of the lesson, that's your most rigorous question. But then the first one that you ask to kind of lead into what the next four would be after right. that. Or maybe it's a review question to like, you know, awaken prior knowledge or something. And even though, I mean, it was a coaching exercise, mm-hmm. but it had a ton of value. Yes. Yeah. I don't, I'm not advocating for only asking five questions in a lesson, but it's a really cool like academic, like intellectual exercise for the teacher in order to prioritize what are the most important things to hit. It kind of makes you make sure that you really know your content at that point too. If, if your coach asks you, what five questions would you ask in this lesson? Yeah. It, it cuts through the noise. It really does. So I, I would uh, advocate for anyone trying that every once in a while if you want to kind of geek out on a lesson, you know. And with those five questions, you know, it's going back to those three components that you said before, Mm -hmm. asking the right questions, asking them in the right way, Mm -hmm. and then having the appropriate response. Yeah. And then you're just kind of going back through that cycle. Yeah. That that brings us into chapter two. I was just thinking that was a perfect segue because you started to hint at this. So those those five questions, we we started to say it like your last question would be your most rigorous question. Mm -hmm. It 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 brings up the concept of cognitive hierarchy. Yes. And there's two common cognitive hierarchies that you hear about. You hear about Bloom's taxonomy and you hear about depth of knowledge. Yep. And generally I, I do Bloom's more. Yeah. Like I like DOK, but I don't know. I think I learned Bloom's first. And when we're talking about Bloom's, we're kind of going back and forth between the original Bloom's and the revised Bloom's. Yep. But we're thinking about learning as, as a pyramid, how you start at the base foundation and then how you get more rigorous as you go up. Exactly. I'm kind of a Bloom's girl too. I also, that's where most of my training was, but it, either way, you're right. The principle is the same regardless of what um, like theory you're using, 
But when we're learning something, we have to start with the basics, right? We can't start by analyzing something. You know, we have to start by, do you know what, can you identify this thing, right? Can you name it? Can you recognize it? Right. Can you just recall the basic foundation? Yes. Can you define it, you know? And then you can start working your way up, right? Can you now explain this thing to someone else? Um, Can you critique it, right? Can you use it to, you know, like apply that knowledge to access something else? And so those hierarchies can be really helpful when you're asking questions and thinking about questions. Yeah, when I think about Bloom's, I mean, I really only use like the first four levels, Mm -hmm. like starting with the recall and then going into understanding and then applying and then analyzing. Yeah, I definitely live in those four the most. I live in those four buckets. And it it makes me think, you know, back to those five questions, like that would probably what it would be is you'd go up each of those levels. Yeah. And that's just another questioning strategy, right? Like, again, let's say we have a crickets question, but we know it was a decent question, right? Um, we know we asked the right question, we asked it in the right way, but the response is is empty. Then that's a cue for me to say, okay, maybe they just don't understand this yet. So I'll take it down a level, right? I'll go down a level on Bloom's, ask a simpler question, right? Like, do you guys remember what this is? And if they've got that, great. Okay, we do have the foundation. I just need to help them get to the next step, right? And if they don't, then I really need to go back and reteach something. But you can use that hierarchy as like a sliding scale to diagnose their misunderstanding and pinpoint exactly how much they understand and and where it starts to break off. Right. I love that you said like diagnosing the misunderstanding. If I'm circulating and I see that one of my students is struggling to, you know, apply what they've learned, whether they're struggling to solve a problem, then I'm just naturally going back down the levels and I'm saying, all right. Do you understand why we're doing this? And then even before that, like, can you define what this question is asking you to do? Right. And it gives me data to know when I need to intervene and ask a different question. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's the key of rigor is like, we could have a whole nother episode on rigor, but I, I don't think that rigor simply means harder. It certainly doesn't mean more work. It really is depth, right? How deeply do you understand something? Can you explain it and teach it to someone else? Right. When I think of rigor, there's that mistake thinking that more rigorous just means more complex. Yeah. But rigor, yeah, really, rigor really means how deep is your understanding of the material. Mm -hmm. And when you ask rigorous questions, you're just asking your students to give a deeper level answer and to show more, you know, more knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. Questions are a huge piece to unlocking that depth, right? That that deeper level of knowledge. So it doesn't really matter if you're using depth of knowledge or the revised blooms or the original blooms. No. You're just thinking about questions and knowledge in terms of a hierarchy. Yeah. And you're going back and forth and you're saying, all right, if I need to get to the top of this pyramid, what are the steps I'm going to take to get there? And then if you notice that your kids are at different levels or they're not mastering one of those levels on mm-hmm. blooms, then you just go back down and you ask different questions to lead them up there and you know where your reteaching needs to step in. Absolutely. And if you're curious or this, you know, maybe you haven't had a lot of exposure to this or it's been a while, we totally suggest Googling these uh, either these hierarchies or just the verbs. You can get really cool graphic organizers and like infographs of the Bloom's verbs and the DOK verbs. And those are such a hack for 
um, helping your brain process like objectives and questions and things like that for each of the levels. You can go in such a deep dive into just learning about how to use blooms. Yes. But I, I swear it makes you a better teacher when you understand that that's how thinking works. Yeah. And I mean, we know that there's multiple domains of blooms. We're talking about the cognitive domain. Yes. Good and point. Just really understanding that if I want you to know this on a deep level, then I have to do the appropriate scaffolding as your teacher to make sure that I'm helping you along the way. Yep. Yep. And I think that actually leads into chapter three. The purpose of questions. Because there's a lot of purposes, right? It might not feel like that to the kids. They just hear a question and they try to answer it. But we know behind the scenes that that question has different Um, We're trying to get at different things with those different questions. So we already touched on kind of the first purpose is to diagnose and assess understanding. Yep. Yep. But then there's also checking for understanding. Like after you give directions or... Yeah. Or just like kind of quick hits, making sure everyone's on the same page. Um, And if, if they're not, if you ask that CFU and your response is not what you want, Don't charge ahead, right? Don't give them the answer. Go back, review it, um, do whatever you need to do and make sure everyone's on the same page. Yeah. I know that we we do check for understanding quite often and we know what a bad check for understanding looks like. You know, you're giving directions or you're giving your lecture and you say, are there any questions? Everybody got it? Everybody got it. (laughs) You know, we all good. That gives you no data. No. You need to ask appropriate checks for understanding. Like, Mm -hmm. can you please re-explain it to me? Or right. can you please write down what the key points of this this lesson just were? Yeah, like, you know, okay, Cassie, before we get started, let's make sure we're all on the same page. Can you tell us again what we're doing? Step one, to, you know. Right. Checking for understanding is really proving whether or not you understand and whether or not you're okay to go on. Yes. And that checking for understanding goes back to those blooms levels. It does. You can't go to the next level unless you can prove your understanding at that current level. I love that. It's all connected. It's all connected. (laughs) And then obviously we can use questions um, to promote critical thinking, right? Connections, um, just deeper thinking and really push kids' brains to process things on a much more deep, like much more rigorous, um, deeper level. And those are kind of those those end of the lesson evaluative questions that you might ask Mm -hmm. that say, can you show me your critical thinking here and what connections do you make what connections can you make mm-hmm. either to prior material or other content areas yeah. or other units that we've talked about? Or discussion questions can yep. be really cool to push critical thinking. I I really love questions that start with if. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that can push thinking to a whole another really fun level. So like, well, if this were to happen, then what would happen next? You know, and they that structure of a question pushes them to assimilate tons of information and and process it and come up with their own unique response. You're, you're kind of leading us into the next chapter, which are the types of questions. Yeah. Good point. You're right. So open and closed. Right. Or, right. Those are kind of the like basic categories. And sometimes you might learn open and closed, or you might hear convergent and divergent questions. Mm-hmm. But those have different responses to them, right? That's what distinguishes them. So an open-ended question has many, many, many different responses. Um, There isn't really one right answer. And so it promotes a variety of thought and different, um, yeah, different ways that kids can process that information. And then I still remember thinking, and I'm really learning about, you know, 
a convergent question is one that goes towards the right answer. Mm -hmm. Those might be your who, what, where, when questions. Yes. And then you can use those in the beginning and then go into your divergent questions that go off in all directions. Like, how could this happen? Or what might happen if? Or suppose that X, Y, and Z happened. Yeah. And I love using those in different types of the lesson. Like, if I'm doing a an intro to new material mm -hmm. and we're really getting the basic facts down, that's when I'm going to ask more convergent questions because I'm trying to push foundational understanding. Absolutely. And then as they have that knowledge, then I'm asking more divergent questions at the end saying, now that you have this foundational knowledge, what would happen if I manipulate these variables? Mm -hmm. I think I love that because I think sometimes we can be, we can fall under this um, like false impression that, rigor should always be at the highest level and every question should be a complex, you know, open-ended, divergent question. And that's not actually the case. Like you you need to build up to those things and you should have a variety of levels. You should have a variety of types of questions. I imagine it would feel probably pretty boring if every question was closed and simple and like a one-word answer. Right. But then overwhelming if every question was open-ended and I'm constantly like, you know, everything's like super fluffy and nebula. So I think you need a variety. That made me think, you know, when you're reading, you know, an essay question from a student mm -hmm. and it just seems like they're all over the place. It doesn't give you any data on where their understanding breaks down because you don't have those prior levels of question to say, where have you mastered this content? Yeah, that's a good point. That also makes me think of the assessments that we write. Like... I think about general science assessments. A lot of times we'll have our multiple choice in the beginning and then we'll have our deeper level thinking questions at the end. Same for history. Yeah, we're hitting our convergent questions in the beginning. You know, they're facts. They've got, they've got straight answers. And then at the end, when we're asking how things change or how things adjust or what might happen if this happened, yeah. all of that is dependent upon having firm foundational knowledge leading up to that level. Yes. And same, you just made me think of another one. I think it's the same for discussions. So if you're having a discussion in your class, especially with certain age groups, it can feel very flat. Um, it can feel kind of like the teacher needs to step in way more than you'd like. And I think that's actually a fault of the question, right? If you start even, we think discussion and we think those big, complex, thematic, open-ended questions, but it's hard to start there. You know, and so if you start with really simple, sort of easily accessible questions for everyone, even if you have five or six or, or I don't know, 10, but they're, they're pretty quick. Everyone has a response. They're short and quick, you know, accessible questions. You really get the juices flowing, you know, and so that can be a super helpful questioning strategy for discussions too. don't fall into a trap where the first question needs to be this meaty, complex discussion question. You might need to warm up to it so that by the time you get to that question, they're ready to actually talk about it. Yeah, we're all trying to have that that like movie moment where the kids have <laughs> these amazing insights. Yes, and everybody has this higher order thinking. Yep, and you know the discussion is rich, and somebody comes in and observes you, and they're like, "Wow, you must be doing amazing things in this classroom to have such." deep levels of discussion. Yeah. What they don't see is the 
the soft lead in that you did. Yes, exactly. Because if we start there and then we get all excited and we've worked hard to craft this and write these beautiful questions and yeah, have our movie moment. And then we start with that and it's just crickets. Yeah, the you kids know, just like, aren't oh, into it. It can be so sad. <laughs> but that's that's part of the response, right? Kind of those three components we talked about at the beginning, asking the right question, asking it in the right way, and then the response and how we respond even though that's after the question, right? But that's part of it. Um, how we respond to their their data that they give us is crucial. Let's go into chapter five. How should you respond as a teacher, both when kids give you the right answer and when kids give you the wrong answer? So, all right, let's say that you've asked one of these, any any of your questions during the class. Yeah. And when a kid gives you a right answer, what are the best moves that a teacher can make? Well, that's the easy one, right? When we get a right answer, but we we still want to handle it properly. You're right. And I think one of my favorites is specific praise. So if a kid gives a beautiful answer, praise the thing that made it wonderful, right? Find that tidbit, whether they used a vocab word or they connected something to earlier learning or they pulled out a theme you were really hoping that they, they would find. Praise that. You know, you can say, oh my goodness, that was amazing. I love how you included a reference to that prior empire. That's exactly what we're trying to get at. Yep. And then you can you can build into like, how did you how did you know that? Like what process did you go through to answer that question? What tool in the classroom helped you know that? Where did you learn that? And you're just rebuilding in those positive habits. Yeah, that's another great response for a right answer is have them get a little meta about it because that's going to help whoever answered. It's going to help them solidify what they did well. And then they're also kind of like peeling back, you know, the screen of their brain and letting everyone else see, oh, that's what they did, you know, and hopefully then we're sharing our learning even more. Yeah, and you 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 praise. I like that you said, you know, you praise the specific vocab word mm -hmm. that they used. And then you can go a step further and then you can open up the questions, make it a little more divergent and ask somebody else, all right, so so-and-so just gave us this great answer. What do you think would happen if we changed X, Y, or Z? Oh, I love that. There's so much you can do when kids give you the right answer. And we got to be careful not to just straight up move on to the yes. next thing. Yes. I think that's one of the, the things that we shouldn't do when a kid gives a, a right answer is just say something really generic like, wow, that was great. You know, or or simply move on, like you said. I, I think a good answer is worthy of a spotlight moment because it validates that student and it lets everyone else know what they should be doing too. So uh, yeah, I think it's important to to pause for a second on that. All right, well, let's get into when the kids give the right answer, there's a lot that we can do. Mm -hmm. But what about when you ask the question and you said before, you know, you get the crickets or the kids try and, you know, they they sort of try and shut you down. You're like, well, I don't know. Yes. Or they give an empty answer or a wrong answer. What are some things we can do? Yes. That's a little trickier. And I think that that happens a lot, right? right. Um, thankfully, there's a lot that we can do. There are a lot of different tools that we can pull out of our teacher toolbox to help them get to the right answer. I think in general, there's one thing that we should not do when they give a wrong or an empty answer. And that's just give them the right answer. Just finish it for them. Yes. Right. Or if they give half the answer because it was easy to regurgitate it, don't round up, right? Don't say, oh, I think what you meant to say was it can be hard. We want to help them, but 
we're, we're actually removing their opportunity to learn if we give them the answer. So we really, really shouldn't do that. Right. When, a stu- when you ask a question and the student gives half of an answer, you can want to help them out because you don't want them to feel like they're put on the spot. No, teachers are nice. Yeah, they're nice. <laughs> we want to help. <laughs> but there's all sorts of other things you can do. Instead of rounding up and just finishing the answer, you can ask, you know, all right, that was great. Like, I love what you've said so far, mm-hmm. but we're missing one small key element who can help bring that back in? Sure. And then when another person is able to complete the answer, then you can go back to the original student and say, all right, now if I was going to ask you again, what would you add to this? Yes, that's huge. I, I love, you know, kind of tossing it out to someone else, but we always have to go back to that first student. Right. We have to make sure it's it's a way of holding them accountable in like a loving way. Yes. Absolutely. And again, this is about their learning, right? It's not about a gotcha moment. We never want them to feel that they're on the spot for not understanding something. It's about getting them to the point where they do understand, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think then it gets a tiny bit trickier when a student will just say, well, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And you kind of have to assess the situation, right? Like, are they trying to opt out Mm -hmm. or do they really genuinely not know? Right. And it's a little easier when they genuinely don't know because then you can just go back down your blooms levels and say, all right, all right, I I see you, I see you. Tell me what you do remember about the Industrial Revolution. Exactly. And then you can go back to your question. I love that. Love that history reference. I got you. (laughs) But there there are a lot of different things that we can try. And you there's no particular order and you can do a lot of them, you know, like in one lesson and in a couple minutes you can do a lot of these. I love a think pair share. If I see that a kid is stuck, whether they're actually stuck or they're pretending that they're stuck, they're um, they're stuck for some reason in their own mind, right? And I love a think pair share because it gives them a, a kind of a lower stakes, safer opportunity to share their thoughts and hear their thoughts from someone else mm-hmm. before they're sharing whole class. Because, and I don't know, response could actually be they're a little bit anxious. Yeah, maybe they do have an answer in their head, but they're worried it's it's not right. You know, and they just need a second of validation from a peer before they share out. Yeah. The other thing, yeah, like you made me think if they don't know, maybe give them an opportunity to express in a different way with like a stop and jot. Yes. And you'd be like, okay, I get that you don't know. And I want you to know that's okay. Yep. Like I've been in the classrooms where the teacher says, I don't know is not an acceptable answer. Like you have to try. Yeah. That puts so much pressure on the kid. Yeah. There's another way where you can kind of finesse the answer out where you say, all right, why don't you write it down? Mm-hmm. And if then you go circulate and you see that they really don't know, then you can check in with them at a different moment. Yes. But you can kind of clear the air a little bit, go to another student and then do the same kind of thing where you say, all right, what do you remember about this? And yep. then build it up. And how does this connect to that? And then you can tell the first student who didn't know, like, all right, I get that you don't know. I'm going to come back to you. Okay. We're going to get you there. We're going to get you there because yep. we're all going to know. Like it's our, And it's okay to not know. Yeah. You made me think of another piece is that when you, I love a stop and jot because yes, you can have a quick one-on-one check-in. And then the other thing is that if, if a student doesn't know, chances are another student in the room doesn't know. Also doesn't know. Right. And so if you do a stop and jot, you have a visual, right? Because we can't just read all the minds, but we can scan a couple papers pretty quickly. So if you do a stop and jot and you're kind of monitoring, circulating quickly and you're, you're looking and you see that half the class is missing the mark, that's a huge, like, like thank God I found that out now that's instead good. of tomorrow. Right, that's good data for you that 
there was something that you did when you were communicating the concept that fell through. Yep. And maybe they just need a nudge, a reminder. So another, whether this can be verbal or with a stop and jot, is giving them a clue with a vocab word. Yep. Right? And so like, okay, let's try that question again. See if you can use the word parliament. See if that's going to ring any bells for you. Um, and a lot of the times that can be super helpful. You made me think, if I'm asking a question and if I'm asking all of the kids to write, because when they write, you get great data mm -hmm. on just how much they truly understand. If I see that they're not where they need to be, I might just go back up to the board and do a think aloud. Yes. And say like, all right, I asked this question. We're talking about the polarity of water, something. Yeah. And I just own it. Just say like, I must have said something that made this unclear. This is how I think about answering this question. And then I'll try and write an exemplar on the board. And then I'll erase it and say, all right, let's try it again. I love that. And like you said, you can do a think pair share. You can do a stop and jot. But it goes back to the first three components that you said. When you ask the right question and you're not getting the response that you want, how do you adjust to it? And then how do you change? Are you asking the question in the right way? Exactly. And that's another like tool I think we can use is in terms of asking the question in the right way is wait time yep. or think time, right? It can be really tempting, especially if you're feeling rushed in a lesson to ask the question, maybe wait a second and then take a hand. And I remember reading something years ago in a training that for adolescents, I think it was like fifth through ninth grade or something. Um, they said that most kids need about seven seconds of wait time to fully process a full answer to a question. And that can feel like a very long time if you're actually counting out seven seconds. Mm -hmm. But if that is going to help every learner in the room have a good answer, just count to seven in your head. Yep. You know? And you can kind of norm it with the kids saying like, all right, I want to see five hands. Like I'm going to ask this question. I'm going to wait until I see at least five hands. Mm -hmm. And you just, it's just silent and you just wait and more of the extroverted kids are going to raise their hand. Yeah. But you have to give the opportunity for everyone to think about it. Yes. And that that's a good point. Classroom culture is a huge piece of this, too, because sometimes it might be good to set up a system in your room where you say no hands until you give a, a cue, right? Like, OK, who wants to share? But even even just the immediate raising of hands can be kind of a trigger to some kids who are trying to think like, oh my God, he already knows and I don't, you know? And so you can even have a cue where you're like, no hands until I, I ask for volunteers. And then everyone just has like a more like Zen couple seconds to think of their response. You, you got to be careful that you're not getting that false positive that you did a good job teaching it because the kid who always gets it very quickly just has the answer. Right. And sometimes we can ask a question and then one of our stellar students answers it immediately. Mm -hmm. And we think, all right, everybody must have it. I'm so good. I'm so good. <laughs> but it brings in like, how are you doing your checks for understanding? Yeah. And then how are you making the kids prove what they know? Are they writing it? Are they reteaching it? Yep. If you have those five questions that we talked about before with your instructional coach. Yeah. Does every student have the opportunity to ask those five questions, to answer those five questions? Exactly. And what data are you getting from those? Exactly. And then we've already sort of, you just mentioned this and we kind of hinted at it earlier, but sometimes just giving the students a minute to write first before 
you share responses can be really helpful too. You know, just that physical processing of quiet writing, you know, pen and paper kind of thing. Um, And again, then you can go look around and see, oh goodness, so-and-so is really off the mark. And you can just right then and there, swoop in, have a quick one-on-one and get them caught up before you move on. And when you write first, you made me think, you can say, you can give everybody the sentence starter that says, I want everybody's sentence to start with these three words. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. Sentence starters and like word banks start with this or use this word. Those can really get the get the juices flowing for kids and also push rigor. You know, the, the way you structure the beginning of a sentence can make it trickier or easier to finish. And so based on where you are in your learning, you might want a really simple sentence starter that, again, is that lower level of blooms where you're just finishing that thought. Or it, it's more complicated and it's going to push them to analyze something. Yeah, I love too. When you're circulating and you've they have those sentence starters, then you can give that positive praise and say, I love that everybody has the word carbon in this answer. I love that. Yeah. I love that. So questions, we do it all the time. We ask 400 a day. 70,000 a year. Oh my goodness. There are so many opportunities to make sure that we're doing a good job with our questions. 400 chances a day to get a little bit better at this teaching skill. And we're not saying they all have to be, you know, like this thought out. Because right. you're going to have those questions. It's like, why did you do that? Yeah. <laughs> what were you thinking? What were you thinking? <laughs> but when you can really get those, I mean, the quality of your questions will lead to higher quality answers with the kids. Absolutely. Let us know if we missed anything or if you have any questioning hacks that you love to use. Uh, Reach out on social media and follow us for more. Thank you for listening to SchoolBridge. See you soon. See you soon.